Welcome, I'm Momoko, and this is Roots to Fruit. I have a fundamental belief that in order to bear our richest, juiciest fruit, we are best served to nurture our roots. Roots to Fruit is a series of conversations with my friends near and far to explore whether this is a shared belief. Today in Tokyo, it is October 28th at 9.15 a.m., And it is quite sunny today with this um, small dragon in the sky. There's little clouds floating above that really signal autumn.、Um, but I'm happy it's, it's sunny again because it was rainy for the past few days.、Um, today, I have the great privilege of speaking with Sita. Hello. Thank you for joining、Hi. me today. Thank you so much for asking me. I feel like, like,、hmm, the right celebrity. <laughs> no, my gosh, I'm such a fan of your work.、Um, it, thank you so much for making time. This is really special.、Uh, let's see, I am talking to you from Oakland, California.、Uh, it's 5 16, August, or August, my goodness, October 22nd, 27th. Got none of that right.、Um, but I did spend a lot of time、um, because we have relatives in Colombia, India, Japan,、um, and other places in the world calculating you know, all the time. The, the big thing in our family would be like, oh, we get to celebrate your birthday twice because it's a different day in a different,、um, you know, in a different place. So. <laughs> There's actually a lot. I mean, t-、uh, time zones, I mean, were established because of labor and really、mm-hmm. squeezing the most out of workers, agrarian workers, in particular, like the, an, an entire region established called、uh, Tea Time, time or yeah, the, the time zone around Tarjeling. I mean,、mm. was because before, you know, the advent of, of uh, uh, high powered electricity, I mean, yeah,、mm. it was. Just incredible to me how our clocks, like our internal clocks and our seasons and everything, are just shaped, molded <laughs> by labor and capital mm-hmm. and food. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. Why don't we first dive into your roots? You already kind of mentioned where all of your、um, kind of lineage lies,、um, but can you speak a little bit about your? The plethora that, that、yeah. is there. <laughs> so, my、um, father is from a small village outside of Calcutta in West Bengal. And for、um, as far as I know,、um, our people have always been there in,、uh, near the Bay of Bengal. And my other、um, side of the family, my mom's family,、um, comes from South Japan, so Fukuoka. And They emigrated. My grandparents and two family members、um, went to Colombia in 1929 as part of this larger project、um, for Japanese farmers to go into the Americas.、Mm-hmm. And、um, so, you know, and, as, and as, again, as far as I know,、um, my peoples there have always been in South Japan. <laughs> so it's just, I think my, my parents are the first generation. Um, to live outside of their homelands in that,、mm-hmm. in that way.、Um, and I'm, of course, here、uh, in another place in, in Oakland, California. So, yeah, so I have family primarily in Japan, India, and Colombia, and the United States.、Mm-hmm. 
Mm. And and where are your parents now? They're in LA. They actually immigrated on the same day uh, to LAX in 1969 and totally, you know, didn't know each other, but it's been a big, like, I think it, it, it's part of like, you know, the serendipity of their story that they um, arrived on the same day at the same airport. (laughs) No. Oh my gosh. That gave me goosebumps and almost like makes me cry. Oh my goodness. Really? That's fascinating. Can you speak a little bit more about your parents and and their their meeting? Yeah, my um, you know my it's so interesting. My my mother was young; she was nineteen, and she really wanted to study photography. And so she applied with a student visa. And at the time, she said that all you had to do was fairly simple. You had to basically say, "I I can't study." Um, you know, there's no course of study in my home country for. Mm-hmm this subject. And so I would like to study in the United States. And so she made arrangements to live with a family um, in LA, in San Marino, actually. And, you know, years later, other family members have told me like, Sita, you don't understand. It's it's not like it is now. Like when you got on a plane before, you didn't know if you were ever going to see that person again. Like no, and, and women in particular, young women didn't do that unless you really had you know, I mean, it's like, it's a strange intersection of, you know, economic necessity, the privilege of travel, the need to be mobile. And I, but I think for my mom, she was the youngest of 11 kids, um, all farmers. Um, and, and I think she always felt um, like she was the only one, you know, and she would tell me like, Sita, you don't, you don't understand. Like I wasn't just the only Asian person in my class. Like I was the only Asian person in my entire school, you know? <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> and because she was, you know, so much younger than, than the rest of her siblings too. So she, I think, you know, with the way she describes it, she came and, you know, she found, she saw all these other international students that were kind of like her and that they were, um, you know, from someplace um, very different, um, and she was very curious about them and my father. And so my, and my father was, uh, you know, he, so my, I should start with my grandfather. My grandparents really were freedom fighters and so they were really active in the independence movement. And my father was right born right in that time. There's a really kind of interesting, um, complicated relationship also with Japan because um, since of course, India was occupied by the British in World War II. There was this alliance with the Japanese as kind of this possible way out mm-hmm. of um, of the bonds of colonialism. And so my father was, he told me about this picture book that they had in school. Mm-hmm. And he said, oh, you know, it was like the kind of like you were writing a hot air balloon and you would see all the countries below and you would stop and you would learn about all the people and he said he was really fascinated by Japan. And I was like, what do you, is this like a, like, where did you learn this? You know, and he goes, and it was actually because of this, um, this um, indebtedness regionally to Germany and Japan that they featured prominently in this children's storybook about places in the world, of course, we know that that was Hitler's and Hirohito's, um, you know, respectively nation. And so mm-hmm. he was, you know, living in this tiny town um, 
you know, with his, as he self-described with his one pair of pants, you know, and he, <laughs> he remembers like exactly how old when he bought his first pair of shoes. Like he really, because of the independent struggle also was born into this really kind of global um, understanding of the world. Mm-hmm. And one that was not, um, you know, it was, yeah, the one that one that was not clear, I think, at times, um, you know, and so, yeah, so he he went off um, to see, you know, the world beyond uh, of the or the world of this picture book and ended up in Los Angeles where his brother was. That's kind of how he ended up here. Mm. And apparently his English was so rough that his brother told him, I know you already have a degree, but just go back to community college. <laughs> brush up on your English because nobody can understand you. And that's where you met my mom who was studying photography and uh, yeah, Pasadena city college. That's where they met. Mm-hmm. Your mother um, grew up speaking Japanese and Spanish. No, she actually grew up speaking Spanish only. Interestingly enough, my grandmother never learned really Spanish. Um, and but she and she never really taught my mother how to speak in Japanese. But when my mom moved, she would send her letters in Japanese that my mom would get translated into English <laughs> by this woman, Mrs. Wiggins. She was this Japanese teacher. Mrs. Wiggins. Mrs. Wiggins. She she had married, um, yeah, a, a white soldier, I think, in Japan and moved to the United States. She was Japanese herself. Um, and yeah, anyway, but she would come to the house and have tea and translate letters and tried to teach me Japanese and I was the worst student. And and so your mother um also learned English after she arrived or was this was she yeah. okay. Yeah, yeah. But but clearly she's quite a linguist to pick it up and go study photography. Yeah. Yeah. I mean I think both of them were. Um the interesting thing is also because they had to speak to each other. Mm. They actually learned it was part of their learning English. Um you know, because I had family members who came later and who, you know, I think it took a little bit longer because they were it's home speaking in, you know, their native tongue. So, yeah. Mm. The language of love for my parents. The- <laughs> <laughs> I mean, clearly it's the most effective. <laughs> yeah. You can write it lights a fire under your butt to figure out some words, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. Um, and, and so what language did you grow up speaking? My mother spoke to me in Spanish when I was, um, a baby. And when I was really little, I remember throwing temper tantrums because she would try to pretend that she forgot how to speak English certain, some days. And so she would, uh, yeah. And I would, I remember yelling back at her. Um, but I'm also very grateful to her because I feel like there's, you know, I, I don't think I would have really come to know um my family as well if you know if not for that um and yeah then we spoke um english in the house and definitely like learned kind of ingredients and bengalian dishes but um yeah and same same for japanese the really funny thing is that because my family because they're um you know japanese words and ingredients aren't as common in spanish they actually preserve the original Japanese words. So my cousins would call foods and vegetables by their Japanese name. And I would be like, what are you talking about? <laughs> they're like, oh, no, that means okra. Or, oh, no, that means eggplant. 
even though those those vegetables exist mm -hmm. um, in Colombia, like they call them by their Japanese. Well, more the ones that didn't. So okra is not very common. Interestingly, it does exist um, because of the Afro-Colombian population, although hard to come by in, you know, um, in the bigger cities. Um, and yeah, there were other um, sesame seeds, you know, um, mm -hmm. both are and aren't. But yeah, so it's, it's, you know, it's, it's funny. I would always, I think I would learn more Japanese going to Colombia than I did anywhere else. At what point did you become interested in knowing more about your ancestral roots? I mean, mm -hmm. your family yeah. dynamic was normal to you, clearly, mm -hmm. but it is really rich and interesting. And I was just wondering if there was a specific instigator for you. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I've been writing about in this this book that I've um, been working on um, about this moment where I, I was really depressed in high school. I mean, and I think part of it was that, you know, we were in the suburbs. Um, I ended up at this really, well, first I ended up at this um, kind of inner city, quote unquote, you know, school. And there was a shooting um, and my mom, you know, pulled me out and was like, she, they lit, my parents moved. They rented a house to get me into a different public high school, which I recognize is also a privilege that, you know, a lot of people don't have. But also I think, you know, like that's how motivated they were to, you know, and and that was that was my mom's mama bear instinct. Like she was going to mm -hmm. do anything. I know I understand this more now that I have a kid. Um, <laughs> and so we lived on the last street of this school district of this very wealthy school district. And I felt totally alienated. Ironically, there were also a lot of Asian students there. I just felt like, you know, I might as well have been a, a UFO, you know, <laughs> in the planet. Um, but it's funny because I think my mom wanted to give me something that she never had, right? She was like, oh, you know, there's a school that, you know, the kids kind of look like my daughter. I never had that experience. I had an, you know, that was one of kind of, the, the kind of hardships of my experience growing up. And instead I kind of went like, what, you know? And in the midst of that, my grandfather had passed in India and I ended up asking my dad if I could go with him to the funeral. And I actually don't remember being depressed on that trip. Like I remember it mm. as a completely different experience. My mom had given me her camera um, and I was like so enamored with this. It was this Nico mat that she got when she first studied photography in the United States. So it was this 1960, 1970 Nico mat. And, you know, and I was just like looking through this lens and like everything was new and everything was like just seeing it with, you know, with new eyes. And then I had this cool camera, you know, and, and I was meeting people, my aunt, I met my aunt for the first time. And I had this experience where my aunt, um, I had never met her before and she sat me down, you know, at the bed at one point and she opened her purse and she took out a baby picture of me and she said, I've been wanting to meet you at this point. I was a teenager. Right. So, you know, so, and I was, and I was like totally taken aback because I felt I had been feeling like so disconnected, like so completely disconnected from anyone else and myopic and, you know, 
just all I could see was like just gray, 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 you know, and and I kind of was like, oh my God, there's there's somebody out there that's been thinking about me that I never really knew about. <laughs> yeah. You know? Mm. And so I think I don't think it was like an immediate connection, but I think that that experience, you know, has really made me curious um, and hungry to feel like I was part of something bigger than, you know, myself in the suburbs and, um, and to really feel like, oh, wow, like, you know, there's, there's a whole world out, out there. Um, I think that's why travel has always been really important to me because I think it just necessarily changes your perspective and your, I mean, I, I know it doesn't always mean a kind of a compassion or empathy, but it's my hope for it that, you know, that you, that that's something that, I mean, I've certainly learned as I've moved through the world. Um, Yeah. And, and, you know, as soon as I, you know, got my first job and I would go to Colombia one year and I would go to India the other year and kind of um, alternate, alternate years for, for, you know, for a while. And because I didn't always speak the languages, I think one of the ways that I would connect with people was just to sit in the kitchen and wait for somebody to give me something to do. <laughs> and until that moment that you visited with your father for your grandfather's um, funeral, you had not spent that much time in India. It was always... Yeah, it was always kind of like an idea, but it wasn't really a place. Mm-mm-mm. It wasn't multidimensional. Mm-hmm. It didn't really smell like anything or, you know, Mm-mm. feel like anything. It just was like, yeah, Mm-mm. it was this kind of place where your grandparents are, you know. And, and was that, what, did you have the same relationship with Colombia? Yeah, we had, I had gone, I think once um, when I was probably around eight or nine. And then I don't think I went for until, again, until I was like 16 or something mm-hmm. like that. But but then I, yeah, I mean, I, I really was kind of obsessive. I would go like, you know, one place one year and the other place the other year. And I didn't actually go to Japan until 2019. So two years ago. Mm. And good thing you did. Oh my God. I'm so glad. <laughs> I'm so glad. <laughs> yeah. And and so when you were a teenager, what, what did Japan look mm-hmm. look like for you? I had gone as a as when I was little, little, you know, my mom my mom's original plan was to spend two years in the United States studying. She had a sister who had um who they had planned to meet and study together in for two years in Japan. And then they were all gonna move back to Colombia and live in their, you know houses, um, you know, with the dog and the husband and the kids and the everything and things didn't quite work out that way. But <laughs> so she didn't end up going to Japan until much, much later. Mm. And I, it, it really is. It's one thing to like, kind of hear, you know, like, oh, then this happened, then that happened. It's another thing to be like, your entire life, like everything you eat, the sounds you hear language, like everything is impacted by this place that you have never been to. You know, that, you know, because my mom grew up very, like the Japanese Colombian community in Colombia is, is um, very tight knit. 
and quite cl- closed often, you know, um, mm. and, and a lot of those, the tastes, the, um, the, the mannerisms, like a, a lot of those things have maintained mm-hmm. and, you know, and it's just so, so interesting, you know, that, that the ways that those transmit. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, there was at one point this researcher I heard who had gone, it was a Japanese researcher who went to Peru to study um, like the way that Emperor's Day was celebrated because like nobody in Japan celebrates it that way anymore. But this, mm-hmm. this small group of the small community in rural Peru still did mm-hmm. because they remembered it from, you know, yes. 70 years before. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Can you share a little bit about enticing offers that were given to Japanese people to move to Latin America? I mean, it really was around land. My, um, if you were not the eldest male child, there was really not a lot for you, especially, um, I mean, we're talking beginning of late 1800s, early 1900s. Um, there've been multiple wars at this point with Russia and Korea. My grandfather certainly fell into that. I mean, I think that what's really difficult to kind of grapple with is the sense of nationalism that also accompanied that, you know, um, and I really, and I say this word intentionally pioneering, Mm. and I don't say that in a positive way because Mm. it, you know, I think it really, um, it, it was, it was, I think, very much as a, you know, expansion in the West has been seen, you know, to, to, uh, quote unquote, improve or, you know, to make more productive. I mean, it was, it was very much, um, I mean, absolutely on the one hand, a, a project of survival for my grandfather and for his family. Um, you know, it was what he determined was his best, you know, his best prospect. But it, it also, I mean, those land opportunities were never given to indigenous Colombians or Afro-Colombians. I mean, it was made possible because in the case of Colombia, which is a little bit odd, there was an agreement made between the Japanese government and they purchased attractive land. And so um, my grandfather was actually paying back the Japanese government, not the Colombian government or a private landowner for the land that he was farming. So it, you know, it is again, this question of, of globalization and, mm-hmm. you know, of, of a lot of kind of the workings of the world that um, have made the outcomes uneven for a lot of people. So the, the, um, the payment structure, the way that that was architected is different um, compared to place like Peru or Brazil or Hawaii. My understanding is that those were primarily private corporations. So they were often Japanese corporations, but they were shipping companies who would then invest in land tracts. Um, And so, you know, it was different in each country. And also in the case of, for instance, Cuba, you know, they, there were uh, much more um, arrival of Japanese laborers versus kind of landowners. Same with the United States, to be honest. I mean, San Jose, this whole area, um, men were coming here to pick fruit. They weren't coming here, you know, with, with land agreements. Um, so it really was different. And I think it varied widely depending on the region that you were from, you know, but the really one of the really interesting things that I learned in Japan um, when I went was that in order for my grandfather to be approved to leave, he actually the this the community council, like each pre, you know, each village basically has their their council, had to 
basically approve him as like a moral kind of ambassador of Japan. And so that told me that he was kind of, he was going as a representative and they wanted a certain kind of, you know, presence. It wasn't like, you know, trying to necessarily like get rid quote unquote, get rid of people or whatever, you know, we found old um, posters too, that were, you know, that were tacked up in the town, encouraging young men to kind of make their new fortunes in the new world. Do, do you perceive that as propaganda? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I think, and just feeding into the the hopes and, and dreams of so many young, poor rural men too, you know, who, um, who really, I think, were captivated by, by this dream. I mean, the story in the case of Columbia is that there were... Um, these agriculture students in Tokyo who read an excerpt of this novel by Jorge Isaacs. Um, it's called Maria and it's this romantic novel. And there's this like lush rolling hills and valleys. And it's all this metaphor for like, you know, the, the, the love that, you know, you can't um, express to this woman, but that they read this. And that was the reason that they, they became cabin boys to earn passage on the ship they went to um they arrived in the coast of Buenaventura and they did soil testing realized it was incredibly fertile land and that was the kind of the that's what preceded the agreement that then happened that made it possible for people like my grandparents to to be on that first ship it wasn't a large population but it does have just this incredible romanticism around it you know that that i think is both captivating and i think at times it's dangerous because it it for years i think i ignored what was going on in the world at the time and once i started putting all the pieces together it painted a very different picture of globalization you know than maybe the one that i wanted to believe um but it's also a very i think useful to to look at you know to look in to look at those things closely Mm. Um. It sounds much more human mm -hmm. than I had been trained to mm. believe. And wow, the power of the arts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the poet and poetic written word. Yeah. Was the land as rich and nourished as the poetry implied? It, it was apparently, and uh, and also enough for there to be lots of bugs um, <laughs> growing around, lots of things that they had never seen before and had never encountered. One of the my aunt wrote a family history, um, my um, Tia Blanca, and she she said that one of my favorite quotes is that you know my grandfather thought about what it meant to move to a country without knowing even how to ask for a glass of water. So oishi means like yummy or tasty, right? And he would always say oishi manana no, meaning like today yes, tomorrow no. <laughs> that was and it was like every meal that I ever saw him at, he would make the same joke. <laughs> <laughs> so everyone was um kind of multilingual and was able to play with the words. You know, I, I, had, I went to really wonderful kind of elementary schools. And I think that for a lot of reasons, things kind of started falling apart once I got to middle school. I mean, in, in the way that I think adolescence is a really 
a really precarious time, you know, for a lot of people. My folks were moving around a bit and, you know, and, and I think that there, I mean, in retrospect, what I know now is that I was also dealing with some kind of unhealed traumas that I just had no words for at the time. I didn't understand how to say um, or, you know, what what it was um, or even understand um, that that maybe it might be connected to something bigger. But it was, uh, yeah, I, 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 you know, I had felt really um really fragmented and um and the the thing that's been curious is as i've been writing in the last two years is that i remember kind of almost two different experiences of that time of just this like kind of monotony and this not wanting to go to school and this not wanting to do anything and then there were like i was like oh no i did have some friends like he did, you know, I did go to India and I did it, you know, <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, yeah, I started making artwork. You know, that's really when I started making art as a way to, to take things, all of this stuff, right? Like all of this shit that I didn't know what to do with and put it outside my body. And like, that was the magic of art for me at the time. Um, and I think that it really wasn't until I went to college that I kind of, I was like, oh, I think I'm finding my people. <laughs> Because my mother moved here wanting to study art, I mean, she was always really supportive, you know, going to art school. They really, truly, I mean, I think they saw art as a place where I could be, like, successful. And so, you know, and maybe their idea of what that meant, and my idea, you know, like, maybe we're a little bit different, but they really valued education. My, my grandfather was a headmaster um, on my dad's side. My parents are um, incredibly generous in their sharing of their experience. And I know that that's not always common for immigrant parents to, you know, to, and, but they did, they, they talk constantly about the past and family members, both, you know, present and deceased and memories and things that they didn't even live through and things that they did. And, and so I felt like by the time, you know, I, I really was like, okay, I'm an, I'm an artist, right? Like I started kind of noticing, well, one, I, I felt like I had this kind of overwhelming pile of stories and stuff and photos and, you know, like my parents keep everything. So this is a huge archive of, of things. And in a way, I don't think it's really been until the last like two years that I've actually been like okay I, I can work with this now I've mm. I've come to um I, I've come to a certain kind of peace with it so that I can really pick up these pieces and and see them for mm. you know for what they are um and that's one thing that I feel like you know that my parents have given me is this like this openness to just be like like here I am and here's all the terrible and good and you know and they didn't shy away from um, from those things. And, and it's not, and it's not just like the things or the stories, but it's these, it's like a way of being. All art is always about truth. But I do think that for the kinds of work that I'm interested in and the work that I want to make, it does require a certain contending with, um, you know, with 
with the truth of how you experience the world, knowing that one person's can be very different from another's. Mm. And the, the ticks and the trembles and the repeating of certain stories, like all of that has told me over time things that couldn't be put into language, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And like, and I think that what I'm finally kind of able to see is, is what it, it adds, you know, what it's adding up to, which is like, you know, what we started talking about that it's, that life is incredibly complicated and that we are not entirely in control of all of it, that we are made up of things completely beyond our control. (laughs) And I do think that creativity and art is one of the ways that we can actually connect the dots and shape some of it um, into something that, that helps us understand it better. Mm. Um, You know, I think that that's, been very much kind of my my process in the last bit is like I need I need this for me mm-hmm. um, and hopefully in that there's also use, something useful for someone else mm-hmm. when people and I suspect people do mm-hmm. um, ask you so what do you do or what's your title oh <laughs> or explain yourself <laughs> yeah. I struggle with this daily but how yeah. how, do, how do you share about yourself? Here's the test. This is I call it the dentist test. If you're at the dentist and they ask you, oh, so what do you do? And you know, they always ask you when you have your mouth open, you're like, you know. And but if you know, what's the thing that you tell your dentist, right? And Uh, and I'll say, like, well, I'm an artist. Oh, what kind of art do you make? Well, I work a lot with food. Um, and oh, interesting. So like, and you know, and then I'll describe like, oh, you know, in the past I've, I've made like wallpaper, but out of spices so you can smell it. And like, oh, that's weird. You know, and it's like, and I'm, you know, and, and I'm also part of this collective called People's Kitchen Collective. And we produce these large community meals and, you know, by large, I mean like 500 people sometimes or as many as 800 people for breakfast. And we do a lot of work around the Black Panther Party in Oakland and, um, and I teach. Oh, where do you teach at? <laughs> you know, so but so it, it's, like um, it's a conversation. Yes, it's a conversation. And I have struggled with that question because I think, you know, what I what I would say in an academic sense is, you know, that I they work in public practice, um, you know, that I'm an artist, a contemporary artist um, and an educator. And that means like not so much to some people and it means a lot to other people. So I think, um, you know, yeah, but it's the art, writing, um, teaching, um, and a deep love of ingredients and the people who make them is, mm. <laughs> is yeah. a good, uh, good shorthand. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, your your work, your art is just um, so playful that I feel like um, people can um, engage with it however deep they want. And so I wonder how how people find you and whether they're in, interested in in your work from like kind of an activism perspective mm-hmm. and expanding their mind um 
or from a, oh, that is beautiful. I, mm-hmm. you know, love the sensory experience that you're giving me or, you know, do, what sort of feedback do you get? I'm sure it's varied though. Yeah. You know, I just wrote this um, short piece for um, the Lucas Artist Program. It's a residency at Montalvo and um, I was describing it. So for Mamacitas, I was very self-conscious about that piece because it was one of the first times that I started kind of venturing more into public practice and and, uh, you know, inter- like making them more kind of event based and interactive versus like installations that you would just walk into. And so I just had all these hangups and thought like, oh, are people just going to think this is dumb or like, you know, what's the difference between this and like something at my kid's school or, you know, all these things. And, and I had a couple of really kind of profound um, moments. One was with um, some uh, one of the volunteers in the gallery actually came up to me and said, you know, this really reminds me of where I grew up. And I said, oh, well, where did you grow up? And he said, oh, three hours from here, I'm Miwok. And, you know, and they started talking about how, you know, what he saw in front of him was basically like a representation of stripping things down to what you actually needed to, to live. You know, it was like, mm. and because the original Mamacitas was very bare bones and it's always kind of meant to be that way it's like it just literally a like a whole a window cut into the gallery wall um and I would sit inside and I had like a crate you know outside that for people to sit on and <laughs> and it and I said and I was you know and later I actually had the chance to talk to him much later about it um I was kind of taken off guard in the moment I didn't know what to say but I I had based that piece on you know tea stalls in my dad's village and mm. um in a you know very different place in the world, um, and then one of the other artisans who actually ended up becoming a collaborator of the piece. Um, there's two, but one one of them, Erlinda Morales, said, "Oh, you know, when we were little, the way we learned how to make ceramics in our village was to like my parents would give me a little bit of clay, and I would follow what they were doing. You know, so it's a way that you, you don't waste materials, but you also like it's it's child it's everything. It's childcare. It's education. It's <laughs> you know, uh-huh, uh-huh. continuing the tradition. It's, you know, and, and I was really, I think I was really touched because I was having such, I was having a really hard time believing that what I was doing was important. And I also, you know, at this point, girl, I had been teaching art classes. I knew that what I was doing was valuable. And yet when I decided to be a full-time artist um, and, you know, really make a way in the world with art as my primary kind of endeavor I couldn't giggle I couldn't say without giggling like I'd be like oh I'm an artist (laughs) and I would laugh afterwards and I was like why are you doing this you know and it just sounded to me like so silly so frivolous and even though again I knew all I had all the counter arguments right Mm, mm, mm. Um, but it felt like such a ridiculous privilege to be able to consider that like what I do you know Mm. um yeah so but do you think that that's <laughs> that's the way in which we were educated or societal norms or like what 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 is the root of that? Yeah, yeah, and I mean I think it's always kind of this expectation like oh so no so what so what's your day job or what you know and a lot of artists do have a day job um which is also necessary in this very expensive world we live in, you know. You know and and by artists I mean I started teaching and um and and also doing a lot of kind of project based work project based work it wasn't all just you know my capital you know m my capital a artwork <laughs> but um to lead with creativity i think 
um, was the thing that I had um, really decided to to give a go at, you know, to be like, you have, you know, like we we can we can give this a shot. So, yeah, and as much as I, I, I you know, in a, in a way, I'm like, okay, I, I have to model this for younger me's, mm. you know, yes. like. <laughs> Yes. Kind of like your mother offering those tools Mm -hmm. that maybe you did not have. And um, I bet your mother was so happy when you became a full-time artist. She said it's easier to have a daughter who's an artist than to be an artist yourself. And I was like, I don't know about that, mom. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you were talking about the freedom fighter and um, your grandfather? Yeah, my grand—I mean, both of my grandparents were um, involved in the independence movement, and my grandfather was actually—he was a—I mean, he was a party member. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And w- were those stories um, spoken about often and kind of ingrained yeah. in your mind and your being? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and I think that you know, my brother and I grew up uh, at, with the memories of so many people that we'd never met. And then we would never meet, mm. you know, both living and deceased. And, you know, that now that I have a baby, um, my little eight month old baby, I, I, you know, I was thinking about what it means to raise children in a country that is, you know, completely different from what you experienced as a child. And it's like, it's like, it must be like being bilingual where you don't really understand like the joke that everybody's laughing at sometimes, you know, or... <sighs> But here you are, you have this kid who's telling you that it's totally normal to date at 16. And my dad is like, no, <laughs> what are you talking? You know, it would happen all the time. But yeah, mm. yeah, we definitely, I feel like we grew up in kind of, we grew up in LA and then we grew up in my parents' stories. Mm. That speaks to me. Thank you. And how do those stories about your grandparents, how have that, that, how have those stories informed the work that you do with People's Kitchen Collective? Yeah, I mean, I think that our our grandmothers, especially um, for Jocelyn Jackson and Sakib Kabal, who are my co-founders at People's Kitchen Collective, that I mean, we those are anchors; those are old anchors. And I will I will share with you a, a story from our one of our first uh, kind of cooking together. We had this event, and things went wrong in the kitchen to be honest like it was it was bad bad and we talked to a chef friend Sarah Kiernan actually afterwards and we're like oh man that was rough you know we're struggling to get through it and she said well you know did you do that you know like did you do this did you check the ovens she's like well you always have to carry a temperature okay well then she stopped she goes did you call in the grandmothers (laughs) we were like what she goes, well, how do you expect to cook if you don't tell them what you need? <laughs> we were like, oh. And she has, of course, a restaurant named Miss Ollie's after her grandmother. But um, it was an important lesson. Call in, call in the grandmothers <laughs> when, you to, when you need to cook a thing. <laughs> yes, they certainly are the kind of superheroes. The book does it already have a date? Yeah, it's due out in May of 2022. 
It's called We Make Constellations of the Stars. Mm. <laughs> Great title. Uh, like we were speaking about earlier, the, the idea that as an artist, I don't make new things. I just connect the dots between existing things so that we can see a story emerge. So that's a way of understanding something. And I think that's true of, you know, if you're a painter and you're making like, you know, you're mixing red paint and blue paint, you probably didn't make the pigments, you know, and, but those, and those are things that exist in the world, but it's the way that you combine them that shows us a way of your seeing, um, you know, and I also think of, you know, the constellations in my life of all the people that, that I'm connected to and, you know, whether that's family um, mentors, um, friends, students, you know, there's so many intersection, intersecting um, constellations that we're a part of in our lives. Um, and I think that that sense of belonging that I've gotten from those relationships really saved me. I mean, it really showed me a possibility beyond like this kind of very narrow and scary, honestly, time, um, in my life that, you know, that I always thought I would never want to revisit. But I think this book has really been about, you know, writing to that 15 year old self, like, mm-hmm. you know, in a, in a way. Um, mm-hmm. And, and part of that is, you know, examining the stories um, of my parents um, and grandparents and, and also thinking about, you know, all the, the mentors that just made such a huge impact um in my life and the relationships friends collaborators now so Mm. is it is it mostly prose it's snippets of conversations emails it's actually it's very experimental (laughs) so like everything yes lots of photos like just these photos that I'm totally mesmerized with of my you know my mom who's like the most gorgeous person that I could ever think of um you know in 1970 uh, and, um, and my, you know, my dad looking, I was like, Oh, that guy, it's like a cool guy. Um, you know, um, so lots of photos, um, conversations, lots of interviews. I recorded hours and hours and hours of interviews with, um, you know, a dozen people, um, over the course of months, really kind of part wanting to kind of revisit also these times, you know, when you have these experiences where, Something happens and you don't really acknowledge it in the moment, but you think about it for years later, mm-hmm. you know, and you, you always kind of are like, oh, I, I, want, I could ask this person. And so this book was really an excuse, you know, art really was an excuse to go back to like my high school art teacher and say like, hey, remember that time that I refused to get out of the car and go to school and you came to the car <laughs> and you reached your hand out, you know? Like things like that, and um, and she did remember actually. She said she remembered it quite well. And so there, you know, there, it's a combination of a lot of different things. Some of these stories that I've mentioned to you, you know, that my parents have told me over and over again. Um, a couple of moments, and I think what it adds up to too is is like it's just an acknowledgement of these are the relationships that have shaped my creativity, mm. and this is what guides me now and what's unsticks me when I'm stuck, you know, like some of these folks are people that I pick up the phone and call. Mm. Um, but I think that what I've learned over time is that this, the sense of belonging is really important to being able to move through the world. Mm. 
Wow, that the 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 process of putting the book together sounds so therapeutic and nourishing and empowering all at the same time. Yeah, and and totally like I mean, yes, and very self-conscious and totally had all the voices on my shoulders, but absolutely, I think you're also right. It's it's been really I think it's given me so much clarity into my practice. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. this, like kind of all this time wondering like what is it that I actually really find important? On a side note, I love that beautiful picture of your mother and I think your auntie on your father's oh, side. Yeah. Um, is that is that a photo that you had seen since you were young or was that one of the recent no. photos that? Yeah, my, my dad had gotten sick a couple years ago, thought that, you know, they were going to have to move out of the house. And so while he was in the hospital, my brother and I went and uh, my sister-in-law went on this like just cleaning spree. And I was obsessed with finding, I mean, my mom had photos in shoeboxes, you know, in bookshelves, like under old phones in the garage, like there were, and I was like collecting all of them. And um, that was one of the ones that I'd never seen before. Mm. I'm really glad that both my dad is okay. That's the one, the main thing that I'm really glad about. And then also that, yeah, we had just an opportunity to, I felt like I, 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 I felt also like, because I was organizing the photos that I was experiencing my parents' life in a completely different way because I saw them, you know, before they had me, um, you know, through to my brother. And of course, everything went digital at that point and the photos just totally disappeared. But um, <laughs> right. And and kind of observing that journey as an adult. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And I think the under, you know, because when you're a kid, it's like your parents are, are your parents. And you, I don't think you really ever think about like the life that they had before you. And I think as an adult, you kind of hear like, whoa. <laughs> Those yeah, like yeah. weird, quirky things you never told me about, you know. <laughs> Fruits in its most literal sense also have um, okay. significance in your life. It seems that my eight-month-old son has also inherited this fruit obsession from the way that he eats mangoes. Um, but, you know, and it, there was such little processed food, I think, especially, well, on both sides of my family, actually, for both of my parents, because they were also super rural and, you know, and so fruit was like this delicious treat. And, and my dad, I mean, man, like you want anything, you want jackfruit, chirimoya, sapote, like what, I mean, any kind of tropical fruit, like he can give you coordinates, prices. Uh, (laughs) And I think, you know, here's another thing about the fruit is that he came and planted a bunch of stuff and my, I live in Oakland, right? So the climate's totally different. And he's like, totally convinced that I can make a mango grove and papaya grove, you know, here. And I keep telling him like, dad, it's not going to work. And I realized like, it's almost like it's this metaphor for his own survival. Like if he can't, you know, if this seed can't survive in my house, like neither can he, you know? And so that, you know, that's why I think it's like so frustrating for him when I like don't water enough or, you know, my parents live alone and their fruit, like, they still buy cases of fruit. <laughs> <laughs> it's survival method. You know what? I This is actually something that's very insightful. I realized when I saw a coconut tree growing somewhere, I was like, oh, that's about how many coconuts come in a case. So my dad's just buying, you know, like <laughs> how many of her coconuts? 
you're right on the tree at that given time. But I mean, I guess it, I guess it does connect to his kind of like sustenance or life force or joy. Well, thank he goodness you live in mangoes. California. <laughs> yeah, no, he, I told him not to, and then he did it again. But I have to say, honestly, like, don't, they'll probably listen to this, but, uh, it was honestly probably the best mango I've ever had. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> Dad's no best. No, but yeah, no, he, he mailed it to me. And apparently the woman at the post office said, you know, you can buy a case of mangoes for this at Costco. And he was like, well, this is for my grandson. I grew it myself. And P.S., he was so pissed that someone stole one of his mangoes that he actually uprooted the entire tree and moved it to a different place in the yard. Brilliant. My goodness. <laughs> I mean, yeah, the things that you do for your grandson. <laughs> um, well, as the sun sets in um, yeah, California, no. I just wanted to ask you one last quick question, which is um, kind of where you foresee your fruit to go. Like, is it in its mm. ripest form now or does it have a ways to go? Or are you looking to plant new seeds? Like, this kind of, mm -hmm. if you think about fruit as your expression, form of expression, mm -hmm. I suppose, mm -hmm. where, where are you now in that mm -hmm. process? So interesting. I was just telling Sun Young Lee, who's um, publishing the book um, with Kaya Press, she, uh, she was, she was like, Sita, what is this book about? And I said, I feel like I keep looking at, uh, looking at it like it's the remover of obstacles. And and which is also how Ganesha is referred to um, as this remover of obstacles, but also that like, I don't know what happens. Like, I don't know this, if this book is a fruit, I don't know what the seeds will become, mm. but I felt like I had to grow this fruit and there was mm. no way around it. Mm. Like, and I think if it's about an acknowledgement, it's about like, um, you know, she was saying an accounting um, for, um, you know, really like these influences in my life. And I, I don't know what's beyond it, but I felt like I couldn't do much else before. Um, you know, I also really said thank you. Yeah. And what I find, you know, really poignant about just fruit in general and kind of the metaphor that it provides is that, it, you know, once it ripens, then, you know, it provides seeds, like you say, and then that it's a, just a cyclical um, and it, uh, informs and nourishes the next, uh, so there really is no end. Um, mm -hmm. but it's interesting to see kind of that evolution. Anyways, I do hope that I get to see you in person, um, yeah. sometime soon, but thank you so much for sharing your story with me today. Thank you so much. Thank <laughs> you. Thank you for listening to this episode. I would love any and all feedback as well as suggestions for future guests. Please email me anytime. My email address can be found on my website, momokonakamura.com. <laughs>